0: Before investing, prospective investors should carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. The current prospectus contains this and other information and is available at EatonVance.com. Read the prospectus carefully before investing. Not FDIC insured. Offer no bank guarantee. May lose value. Not insured by any federal government agency. Not a deposit. Investments involve risk. Principal loss is possible. Distributed by Foresight Fund Services, LLC.
1: This Breaking Views podcast is sponsored by Refinitiv. The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants not of Reuters news.
2: Welcome to The Exchange. I'm Liam Proud from Reuters Breaking Views. Margaret Vestager is an unusually high-profile European commissioner. During her time as the bloc's competition chief, she made enemies in Silicon Valley by laying multi-billion dollar fines at the door of Google and Apple. More recently, she's riled politicians in France and Germany by blocking the merger of Siemens' train unit with its Gallic peer, Alstom. We sat down in her Brussels office with our Europe editor, Peter Thau-Larsen, to reflect on her near five-year term as antitrust enforcer for the bloc and to discuss where it should go next. Commissioner Vestager, thank you very much for being here.
3: More than welcome.
2: Um, So, you know, this commission is kind of drawing to a close now. We've got the European Parliament elections coming up. I think it's fair to say you've been, you know, one of the, the, your portfolio has been one of the more influential. Um, I think people are generally more aware of you than they are of other commissioners. I mean, how do you think about the kind of lasting impact that you might have had over competition policy and kind of retrospective in the last four and a half years?
3: Well, it's it's obviously very difficult to judge. Also because uh, now we're still sort of, to use a metaphor, very close to the painting. Mm -hmm. Still sort of painting and putting in dots and shadows and And lights, and only when you take a couple of steps back, you really can sort of appreciate uh, the motive and and the composition. So, in in that respect, it's still somewhat early days. But that being said, uh, of course, the ambition coming into the mandate was for people to see that someone cares, that they get a fair deal, Mm -hmm. that the market is working for them. Uh, that as a consumer, that or a business customer, that the market is here to serve you. Uh, and in that respect, of course, I hope that the cases we have had have shown that, yes, indeed, we are here uh, to make sure that you get a fair deal.
2: And do you, I mean, I guess a big part of that legacy is gonna be, you know, the big technology companies. Yes. I think that's, you know, what a lot of people would associate a lot of your actions with, you know, you've seen the fines on Google. I mean, how do you think about the next stage of that sort of, I don't want to call it a battle, because that sounds mm. like it's picking a fight for the sake of it, but that, I mean, do you think that competition powers, uh, you know, need to evolve at all to cope with that threat? Or do you think that, you know, the powers that you have had have been adequate over the last four and a half years?
3: Well, I definitely think that we... Want to, to want to develop and need to develop. Uh, and just taking another uh, look back, yeah. uh, one of the things that people don't see very much is all the work that we do on uh, making sure that mergers do not let lead to, to merger into monopoly or dominant market market position. Uh, and a lot of that is in commodities, right, or in the business to business market. Right, it would be steel, copper, cement. Uh, liquid chocolate uh, in amounts that you only need if you want to cover your house or something like that. Um, so a lot of sort of um, of what would you would never buy that as a as a citizen right. consumer. Uh, the agrochemical business has taken up a lot of time. Yeah. What we see in all these mergers is the digitization as well.
2: I see. So it's not just focused in no, big tech, thing. No, right? it is yeah.
3: not just big tech. Of course, they are sort of the digital natives. And we have had these uh, very big uh, antitrust cases, uh, Google One, Google Two, Google Three. Uh, We've had the Amazon case on e-books. Then, of course, we've had the tax cases uh, as well. Uh, So what we see is that from sort of the digital natives to the digitization of the entire economy, uh, that will give us new challenges because access to the fundamentals in a fully uh, digital, uh, high-tech economy, is is data.
1: Mm.
3: So how to deal with that? How to make sure that you may have dominant companies, but still the newcomers, the innovators, the challengers will have access to the data that enables competition? Yeah. So we have a number of new issues uh, to deal with, uh, maybe to challenge some of the tools that we have already, mm. to see... Uh, probably they're quite useful Mm. Uh, and they're useful because the the motives of avoiding competition or uh, slipping into antitrust issues they are probably the same yeah greed power uh fear Mm. of losing out in the marketplace but but the ways things are happening that is new
1: Mm. but there is a a, i mean a criticism of some of the cases you brought is that you sort of extended or stretched the definitions of competition policy beyond what they were sort of supposed to do or what they were intended to do. And I guess I wonder when you think, of, if you think about some of these big tech companies, which are still, despite big fines and mm-hmm. stuff, they're still big yes. tech companies and they're getting bigger. Do you think that the tools you have are sufficient to to deal with that new world? Or does it require a sort of a rethink of the whole approach of of competition policy?
3: Well, of, of course, we still care about price, mm-hmm. uh, also because for, for many, many citizens, price is still an issue. Not everyone is having whatever budget. They're on yeah, small yeah. budgets. For them, it's very important that uh, prices are competitive uh, mm. and by that, affordable.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: Um, second thing is, of course, choice. Mm. Even if you don't have much to do with, you would still like to be able to choose. Yeah from different products, to your preference, to what you need. Uh, and that's not necessarily the case if you want to choose a you know, search engine,
2: there's only really one viable search engine.
3: Yes, uh, but talking about price, of course, we would also like people to see that you pay a price. It may not be in money, uh, that you have to take cash out of your pocket, but then you pay in other ways. You pay directly with your data, you pay with your eyeballs because you see advertising that affects you. So we have been dealing with price and trying to sort of update the understanding as to what is going on in the marketplace. Mm -hmm. And in a modern economy uh, like the European, of course, innovation is part of parcel of competition. Uh, And in a number of cases, we see that innovation is also one of the things needed in order, for instance, to keep keep a divestiture viable. If you divest uh, part of an overlap in a merger case, well, that divestiture may not be worth much if you don't have the innovative capacity to come with it. Because this is where where you make the money. That is in the the innovation from the divested uh, business. So what we, of course, feel obliged to do is to make sure that the way we understand competition is in line with what is taking place in the marketplace. But do you,
1: I guess, sort of behind my question is a sense of, is it enough to sort of say we're going to look at these big companies and we declare them to be dominant in certain areas and, 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 and find them when they transgress? Or, I mean, there is in the US, for example, the political debate has shifted quite a lot in the past mm. few years, and there is now quite a strong movement of people who say actually these companies have become too, too, too big, we need to think about breaking them up somehow, is that, how do you sort of, how do you think about that challenge?
3: Well I do think indeed that they have become very big uh, and part of that comes uh, from their success, mm-hmm. they're great innovators. innovators, they have uh, produced great uh, products, it also comes from uh, the economic logic of digital business, uh, the network effects, the enormous uh, benefits of, uh, of scale, things that are uh, sort of part and parcel of being digital, uh, marginal costs approaching uh, zero. So, of course, we're dealing with something new. Uh, the nature of these businesses could also be that if you try to sort of, if you should, should use an old yes. reference, if you cut off the heads, immediately you have seven more. Right. Sort of uh, the the character of a, of a Hydra. Yeah. Uh, and anyway, since obviously uh, suggesting that you would divide a company is, is irreversible, so you would go directly to court mm-hmm. uh, okay. with the claim that this has to be tested in court bec- before it can take effect. So it can take a very, very long time before you see any result of that kind of endeavor. Yeah. Mm. Which leads us to think that maybe we can achieve uh, a competitive marketplace not turning to this measure of very last resort by looking at the raw material for this economy. And the raw material here would be data. How can uh, a dominant company be obliged to give access uh, to data while still maintaining the incentive to invest in data? Because we would very much like to have a data-driven economy. Uh, data coming from personal data, inferred data, publicly funded data, uh, machine-driven data, like in the Internet of Things, and, of course, combination of uh, all these different data sources. Yeah. Very important developments that can create great benefits. But you can have a completely inferior, old, worn-out algorithm If it can work on all the data of the world, it will produce much better results than the cutting edge, completely new technology uh, algorithm that has no data to work with. So there is an an issue that we are now discussing after the special advisors report as to how to deal with this. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because it's not in sort of our digital citizens, right? The GDPR, that there are barriers to share data, to pool data, to, to, to work with data. It's just in the way that you set it up mm. and access to data is access to business
0: mm-hmm.
2: So part of the you know the next move as opposed to breaking up companies would be to to look at how to kind of unlock that data as a as a sort of promoting whatever innovation yes author. and
3: and also of course to consider access to data as a as a remedy. yeah yeah um, because one of the of the painful things is of course to say, what happens to businesses while we do our casework? Mm. Uh, of course, there is a limit as to how much we can speed up uh, because of due process, uh, things that we would never ever compromise on. Yeah. But that being said, uh, consumers are still losing out mm. uh, if uh, competitors suffer to such a degree that they can find no investors for innovation. That they cannot be found to produce uh, to present their product to potential customers, and in that, of course, we need to we need to speed up. Yeah. Uh, and when you see the harm done, uh, if an abuse has been taking place over a period of time, it's very difficult for the market to push back. Yeah. If you look at the uh, AdSense case. Google stopped the illegal behaviour uh, by the time we sent them the statement of objection, yeah. which is two years before the final decision, and yet the market has not changed.
2: Yeah, yeah. This is the the Google owned ad network that you're referring to. Yes, yeah.
3: that is when you when you work on third party website, for instance, a travel website yeah. that has a search box. Then who should provide advertising connected mm. with the search box? And this is an important market because this is can be an access point for other search engines and and for their monetization uh, next to that when it comes to advertising uh, but here we see no pickup in the marketplace and and this is of course why we wonder well what will it take because our obligation is to see can we bring back competition in this market in order to serve customers better
2: yeah. So just going beyond um, big tech a second, I mean the the one of the more recent high profile cases was the, the Siemens Alstom merger, which is you know the train division of this enormous German company was going to merge with the uh, French railway maker uh, Alstom. Now the argument behind that deal was that you know there's this Chinese behemoth, is absolutely enormous Chinese company mm-hmm. that was going to you know squeeze these smaller European players out of the market. Now um, that that you didn't deem that to be a kind of a strong enough argument. I mean, if if companies aren't allowed to merge to combat, you know, these foreign giant companies, what's what's the right way to kind of address that problem?
3: But but of course, this was one of the claims that we uh, we spend a lot of time analyzing in depth. Yeah. Uh, is there a, a Chinese competitors in in the markets where we have a concern? Mm. Because we do find Chinese competitors in in metros um, in city trains, which would be trains that go by, for instance, 200 kilometers per hour, um, in trams, you know. uh, In a lot of markets, there's plenty of competition. We have no concern whatsoever. But in the two markets where we had uh, a very serious concern, which would be in mainline signaling, Mm -hmm. and mainline signaling is a European priority, because we have set a European standard. We would want member states to invest here in order to provide for more frequency, uh, more regularity, uh, for people better to to use trains. Uh, and the second market, very high speed trains, which has trains that go more than 300 kilometers per hour.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: Also a very important market, because this is here you find the alternative to flying.
1: Right.
3: Here, of course, we were looking, well, who can can member states turn to if Mm. the emerging parties say well we will limit choice we will have higher prices and here the chinese they do not appear at all right Uh, as we speak there's no very high speed train uh produced in china running outside of china they're in the chinese market Mm. so what we have been dealing with is more to say well what does it then take to make sure that when we ask fair competition from companies doing business in Europe, how to stand up for them if they are met with unfair competition outside of Europe? Mm-hmm. And this has produced the first now EU-China uh, strategy of this mandate. Yeah. But
1: so if, if, if the debate that was sparked by that decision was a broader debate about mm. sort of industrial policy. And, and obviously there was an argument put forward by various countries that you know, competition policy should be relaxed in order to consider these, uh, to, to take account of these sort of these these threats, uh, something you obviously argued very forcefully against. But I guess I wonder how do you what do you think is the right way to deal with the potential threat, real or potential threat from from countries like China, where they're not the companies that are operating not on a level playing field Um in terms of access to markets and so forth? I mean, are there other ways in which you would address that?
3: Well, one of the things that we've put a lot of effort into enabling is to resume the the debate about what we call an international procurement instrument. Part of that is to say we would like to have uh, reciprocity. If you do business with me, I want to do business with you. And in a number of these markets, uh, we find that they are tender-driven. You know, a train is not, you know, something you take from yourself. Uh, It is is specific uh, to your needs, to the tendering process. Uh, And we would very much like to say that, of course, uh, people can come here. We would like to be better to refine the tendering procedure so you have Mm -hmm. more quality in it. But if you come here to do business, you would expect us to come and do business with you. Yeah. And, and that's, I think, is an obvious uh, first step and a very good signaling also to to global market players. Mm. Uh, and I think there's plenty of room for a much more sort of confident Europe, mm. uh, maybe with a somewhat more hard-nosed approach to say, mm. well, when we say fair competition, we do mean it. Mm.
2: So rather than relaxing our own internal standards and saying, well, you know, let's, let's copy that behavior that we've criticized elsewhere, you, you actually say, well, no, we're going to kind of, you know, demand some reciprocity or, you know, stop, another idea is to stop inbound M&A to, of kind of sensitive uh, areas like technology and AI, it's been talked about.
3: Well, that I think is, is another uh, idea that we'll have to, to put into effect and, and we have the legislation in place. Uh, to be able to screen foreign direct investment, uh, to make sure that people come for the right reasons, mm. uh, that it will not threat security, uh, public order. I find that to be 100% legitimate. Um, and again, uh, to use our, our tendering tools in a more qualified way. Mm. Uh, because there's nothing to suggest that you just take the cheapest offer. Uh, You can make uh, quite qualified uh, tendering processes where your appreciation of uh, quality, local sourcing, uh, the working conditions, uh, the after uh, markets uh, servicing, in order to have maybe even a a more full picture of the real costs uh, involved in the process. Uh, And and that would change the marketplace also for European players who are... uh, in my opinion, uh, very capable when it comes to answering that kind of calls uh, for service. Yeah.
1: Does it worry you that the EU has not been very good at developing its own big tech companies?
3: I think there are a, a, a number of, uh, of reasons uh, that it has taken us some time to to make up for. Uh, one of the most obvious is that we don't, we haven't had a digital single market. Um, and in, in, in digital business, I think you have to take uh, yourself from garage to global. That should be uh, sort of the perspective. But since we have had very national market also when it comes to digital issues, mm. for language reasons, uh, cultural reasons, a lot of regulatory reasons, um, then that has been one of the things that has been holding back. Mm. Now all of these uh, regulatory reasons has been eased. Uh, thanks to my colleagues here, Andrew Sansip, Maria Gabriel, who has been working with this, uh, as one important thing. Because if you see uh, US companies, they are born in a digital single market. Uh, To a very large degree, for European businesses, it has also been a challenge to find financing. Uh, Because the European uh, market has been very debt driven. Mm -hmm. You go to the bank, uh, you get debt financing. You don't go to get uh, equity, but also very often what comes with equity is new competence. Yeah. Because if someone buys 5% of the, your company, they also want to be part of the scale-up process. Mm-hmm. And they come with new knowledge. Mm.
0: Uh,
3: and you see some of the differences coming from that dynamic uh, in the U.S. Uh, because you have a, a market that is almost the reverse of the European market when it comes to access to capital that is in 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 the process of improving uh with the new sort of uh, regulatory um beginning for a european capital market that can provide that kind uh to a much bigger degree but i think you can ask anyone and they would have a specific example of a promising european startup that would have liked to stay european Mm -hmm. but who went to the us uh to find their investors and then of course you'd find businesses who are created for the purpose are being sold to the highest bidder. Uh, and that of course is uh, is legitimate, that's another story. Um,
2: so just, you know, moving on again now, we've got these EU elections coming up where I think it's not, you know, it's the same in the UK and many other uh, countries across Europe. There's an expectation that the kind of anti-Europe vote is gonna be much higher than, you know, pro-Europeans would like. I mean, what's, what's the way that the European Commission needs to kind of respond to this kind of rising sentiment you know, call it populism or whatever um, across the block to make it kind of make itself more relevant to people's lives so that people don't see it as an enemy.
3: Well, I think it's very important to, to be quite nuanced here um, sure. because actually what you see in most member states is that there is a still bigger uh, appreciation of having a European democracy. Uh, so I think it's very important sort of to make sure that you read it, uh, the response in the right way, to say, well, maybe we're in a situation where people say, okay, fine, we have a European democracy, I don't question that, happy that my country is a member, but this and this and that, I don't like. You should do differently, you should do more, you should do less. But we have this tendency to, to sort of treat criticism as we would have done as it was very profound uh, that someone is complaining, why didn't he take the dishes? And he says, well, she wants to divorce. <laughs> These are two different things.
1: Yeah.
3: And, and I think we could be much better in addressing uh, sort of issues where people get very annoyed or find that it's intrusive or find that we're doing too little.
1: Yeah.
3: Um, if you look at, at the crisis um, management capacity, uh, I was just reminded, uh, because we were discussing uh, why didn't, uh, why couldn't we do more immediately to the refugee and immigration crisis uh, back 2015, and then someone reminded me, well, it wasn't pretty either in the beginning of the financial crisis. Uh, you must know that uh, yeah. firsthand. Yeah. It was not pretty. Uh, no one really knew what to do, uh, how to make sure that you had uh, funding, backup, uh, how to do things. Yeah. It took some time uh, before you got your house in order for the immediate effects, and before you got the legislation in place in order to calm things down. Mm. All of that we have forgotten by now, yeah, because it works. Yeah, and I think to some degree we have the same situation here when it comes to, to issues like uh, illegal or unauthorized uh, migration. Uh, we don't have a crisis anymore, but we have sort of mentally adjusted to the fact that. Uh, protecting refugees, managing migration, is an issue that will stay with us for decades. So we need to find a system that can work on an everyday basis. And here we're not done yet, uh, because we don't have a system based on legislation that can work. It's still an outstanding uh, measure that will have to be uh, decided by council and parliament, and that will then be the next parliament to do that, and the next council.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Is that that what you would see as the biggest priority for the next
3: commission, council, parliament? Well, I think there's a a number of things that you have to accept as a given. Mm. Uh, One thing is fighting climate change. Mm. Uh, Second is the industrial revolution of tech uh, data. And and thirdly is sort of the challenge of, uh, of making people feel that they belong in their societies. Uh, because one thing is if you get fired from, from the business where you work, it's likely that you can get a new job. If you have the feeling that you're being fired from your society, then where do you go? And, and that's to, to make people feel that they are counted in, that there is, of course, uh, uh, expectation that they take part, that they are a full citizen in their society. I think that is a given, just as well as the Industrial Revolution and climate change. But the the main challenge is, of course, that we find in ourselves the willingness to come together and find solutions on this, because these are serious, very difficult uh, problems to solve. But look at Europe and what we have achieved. You know, Second World War, Europe was completely destroyed physically, Mm -hmm. spiritually. The Cold War, Iron Curtain, Berlin Wall, reunification of Germany... Yeah. These are amazing achievements with a level of prosperity and member states sort of growing together. If we can achieve that, of course we can solve new problems as well, also when they are very big and very challenging, but it it takes for us to find in ourselves yeah. to be able to work together and find compromise.
1: Yes, and I guess like the question I guess I question to what extent. The EU is sort of is seen as sufficiently legitimate to, to address those concerns in a sort of collective way. I mean, I, I fully understand that yeah. people yeah. here think that. But,
3: but, but that, of, of course, that is the, 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 the main question. And this is also why I try not to discuss more or less European Union, but to say what is it that we should solve together? Uh, because a lot of people say, well, climate change doesn't make much sense if we just do that 5 million here, 10 million there. We need to get the push from 500 million people also to have a global footprint, also from the business solutions that comes from uh, fighting climate change. Uh, Managing who's coming and going in Europe. Very difficult for that to make sense for the individual member state. Uh, Things like hybrid warfare, security, cyber security, security. uh, that is a thing that within also the Native Framework we could do more. Then, of course, you have a number of issues where you'd say, well, should we do more or less? But but that, I think, very much depends on, on the, the specific discussions. Because in this commission, we've been doing a lot to say, well, yes, we know there are so many skilled, creative people, but we want the needed proposals and not the nice ones because nice if member states can do it they will if they find it sufficiently important if they don't want to do it anyway then take a deep breath we have a lot of other things to do
2: and um so just finally, so you're you're on this this list for the for the liberals um, Mm. because obviously after these elections you know come autumn there we will have this kind of wrangling over who's going to make up the next commission. I mean, are you, are you able to clarify for our listeners what, what what you're running for? I mean, what's the kind of, how, how are you thinking about the, the next stage of the commission?
3: Uh, unfortunately not. <laughs> <laughs> <Fair> no, <enough. laughs> we have made the decision in, in, the, in the political family that I come from. Yeah. And it's on purpose, I say family, because these are quite broad families, goes yeah. for any political family yeah. in, in, in Europe that we would set up a team to represent the family uh, and also to make sure that we get a debate on substance. Because who is who in Brussels is not that engaging uh, for, for people on, on the campaign trail. Uh, people want to, do, to discuss uh, rule of law, uh, inequality, uh, social issues, uh, do I belong in my society, climate change, security. That you can have a debate about. But who is who in Brussels? That is for after the election.
2: Fair enough. Commissioner Sarge, thank you very much.
3: It was my pleasure.
2: That's all for this week. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Freddie Joyner. Please subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, or wherever you satisfy your audio cravings for The Exchange, Views Room, or other Reuters podcasts. You can also check us out at breakingviews.com, reuters.com, and on Twitter, at breakingviews.